I don't think many of the people who descended on Azusa Street did so with the intention of lurching around in the sawdust. That was, for many, an unconscious response to the environment. But how does this work? What makes people so enthusiastically hop on the bandwagon and let it take them places they quite possibly would never go otherwise? Human psychology is what it is, and it was psychology, not spirituality, that allowed all those people to lose their inhibitions and do everything from scream and cry loudly to writhe and convulse on the floor to passing out slain in the spirit and, oh yeah, make baby babble and call it language. You are responsible for how you use your intellect. You are responsible for whether or not you insist on proof when you're told to just believe something. You owe it to yourself to make certain demands of yourself when it comes to how you're going to think about anything. If what happened at Azusa Street wasn't cultish, what was it? Welcome to Unbound, a podcast for new atheists and lifetime atheists, ex-evangelicals, truth seekers, and free thinkers. There is life after faith. And life here is good. It's time for a new perspective and a better conversation. I'm Spider. And I'm Shell, and it's time to get unbound. So 115 years later, and Charles Parham and William Seymour and all the lunatics who blazed this trail we call Pentecostal evangelicalism are still influencing people and still drawing enough attention to fill pews, albeit fewer pews every year. We know what happened at Azusa Street and all the circumstances that led up to it, but why did so many people buy into this in such short form? How did William Seymour manage to even convince one person that this craziness was real? That's where we're picking up the conversation this week. I'm Spider. And I'm Shell. And tonight we are going to take a closer look at what happened at Azusa Street and why it's still happening now. Last week we laid out the history, this week we're going to lay out the psychology and give you the tools you need to resist things that have more potential to harm you than help you. But before we get into that, the Satanic Temple demands equal time, I pledge allegiance under extreme duress, and an act of true brotherly love from Pastor Mike Todd. It's Christians Behaving Badly, School Spirit, and Snot Edition. Mm. What have you got for us this week? (laughs) Well... First, Satan makes Christians freak out, because of course it does. Of course it does. I love how you put it and not he right there. Well, yeah, because Satan is not actually a person. It's a concept. just a concept. Yes. The first meeting of the Satanic Temple's after-school Satan Club. (laughs) Love it. At the Jane Addams Elementary School in Illinois was protested by a group of Christians, including a pastor, because they just couldn't stand the idea that there was competition to the school's evangelism club, or the Good News Club. Well, tough shit. (laughs) Equal time, motherfuckers. Yeah, seriously. This is a direct result of the Equal Access Act of 1984, which allowed the formation of Bible clubs after school in public schools, as well as the Supreme Court decision of 2001 that stated that public schools with limited public forums could not discriminate on the basis of religion. This has led to 5% of public schools having formed good news clubs. Of course it has. And, you know, I have to admit, my high school had what we called a Christian share group. Yeah. And I sort of kind of helped found it back in the day. So, yeah, you know, I'm certain that I would have been freaked out by a Satan club in my high school. But it's also not the type of thing that, that really cropped up in the 80s. No. But I'm kind of glad 
that it's the type of thing that crops up now. Yeah. And especially with this particular organization, because as I've said before, this is one of mine and one of the show's favorite organizations oh, is yeah. the Satanic Temple. Oh, just because of the way they do things and the in-your-face way that they make their points. Yes. It's kind of passive-aggressive. But it's kind of necessary yes. at the same time because this is the type of thing that the people they're trying to get the attention of actually respond to. Yeah. So tell us a little bit more about this. Okay. Well, enter the Satanic Temple and their after-school Satan clubs. These are clubs that have nothing to do with indoctrination and everything to do with teaching children to think for themselves and learn science. Two good things that go better together. It's true. Cue the Christian outrage. They must have gotten a ton of complaints because Superintendent Dr. Rachel Savage said in a letter to parents this week that the group formed at the request of a local parent, in case anyone was wondering who was behind all this. A parent from within our district reached out to the National After School Satan Club, informing them that Jane Adams Elementary School in Moline offers a Child Evangelism Fellowship Club and asked that they bring their program to that school as well to offer parents a choice of different viewpoints. Nothing wrong with that. Of course, you know, any Christian is going to be like, that's deceptive. There's still nothing wrong with that. Patty Garibay, founder and executive director of American Heritage Girls, a Christian alternative to the Girl Scouts, told Fox News, At a time when youth are experiencing a mental health pandemic, it is outrageous that a school district would allow a club based on the master of confusion. That's not how mental illness starts. They call him Lucifer, the yes. light bringer. There's nothing confusing about anything that Satan no. ever did in the Bible. No, there really isn't. I'm like, I don't know where he's getting all this bad press from. Nope. But... I mean, it's all like... I mean, we're, we're back to the he part of it, but this is the way that Satan yeah. is presented in in a couple different places in the Bible. Right. So, yeah, there's, there's nothing confusing about any of the messaging that revolves around the character of Satan in the no. Bible. And that's what they're referring to here. Right. And no one is trying to convert children. As stated in the flyer, After School Satan Club does not attempt to convert children to any religious ideology. Instead, the Satanic Temple supports children to think for themselves. Which makes them an enemy of evangelicalism right. right there. I guess that's what they can't handle. They don't want to support their children learning science in a school. Go figure. Go figure. I mean, <laughs> this, is, this is the way these people think in a nutshell. They have limited say over what can happen in a classroom. So let's just scream about this. Yeah. This next one is kind of rage-inducing. Yeah, just a little bit. Stand and salute the decorated fabric or else. Or else. A proposed Iowa law says that teachers must stand and recite the Pledge of Allegiance with their students and not say anything unpatriotic about the pledge. Do they have to show their papers on the way into work too? I know. I don't know. It's just crazy. It was only this school year that Iowa first began requiring the recitation of the pledge in public schools. Students who don't want to say it don't have to. The law gives them that right. But teachers? State Senator Adrian Dickey doesn't want to give them the opportunity to opt out. His Senate file, 2043, filed on Thursday would change the law in three ways. It would require all K-12 teachers to say the Pledge of Allegiance unless they have a disability that prevents that. 
Two, it would require all K through 12 teachers to stand during the Pledge of Allegiance unless they have a disability that prevents that. It would ban all K through 12 teachers from saying anything about the Pledge of Allegiance that students could interpret as unpatriotic or politically influential. If a teacher violates those rules, a first offense would lead to a written warning, a letter sent home to parents, and a notice to the Board of Education. A second offense, all of the above again, and a one-week suspension without pay. A third offense, all of the above again, and the teacher would be fired. I'm not sure if they still give you the one-week suspension without pay again or if they just fire you outright. Well, it's looking kind of cumulative, so I mean, it could go either way. But, I mean, this whole thing is completely batshit. Yeah. And I'm certain it's not legal. Yeah. Hemet Meadow has done a whole podcast series about problems with the Pledge of Allegiance, and he states some of them in the article. The phrase under God pushes religion onto people who may not be religious. The pledge suggests falsely that we really have liberty and justice for all. It was originally written to promote anti-immigrant sentiment, and frankly, our country isn't always one that deserves admiration. Why would we want to pledge allegiance to a nation that is so often a global embarrassment? To put it another way, teachers in Iowa could lose their jobs simply by teaching students about the history of the Pledge of Allegiance, because its history is un-American at its core. Of course it is. And, I mean, I'm just looking at this quote and thinking to myself, yeah, you know what? There isn't much about America these days that is worthy of allegiance. There's a lot that needs to be fixed here. Mm. And rather than just blindly pledging allegiance to a piece of cloth, maybe we need to be doing a little bit more to teach the kids in school precisely what's going on in our country. Right. And especially with the education system itself. That's a prime example of something that's really, really wrong here. And that same system cultivates things like this. It's rapidly moving away from any notion of free thought, which really, in my opinion, is what good education should be founded on, the principle of thinking for yourself. You know, this is one of the reasons why I'm not a classroom teacher today, because I was on my way. I was, um, I took some of the tests. I was well on my way to teacher certification, but working as a sub for a bunch of years, it became apparent to me that most of my job as a classroom teacher would involve handing out packets, letting the kids teach themselves, and then quizzing them and testing them on what they learned from this stack of papers. Yeah, So that to me was not teaching. No. And it's just, it's one example of how we've dumbed down our education system in this country to the point where now we're going to teach kids that we have to acknowledge that this country is things that it isn't. Otherwise, all kinds of bad things can happen to us just for speaking the truth and speaking logically about the situation that we're actually in. Yeah. That's a real problem as far as I'm concerned. Oh, definitely. Yeah, this law is many things, but patriotic it ain't. Oh, definitely not. No. Oh, good Lord, we've got Pastor Mike Todd on deck. Mm, Yes, we do. Not only ignorant, but disgusting. Very disgusting. 
Pastor Mike Todd, the idiot that also doesn't believe that domestic abuse is enough to end a marriage over, performed the grossest sermon illustration ever. And it doesn't even make sense. No, it really does not. Let me set you up for this. Mike Todd wanted to tell his congregation that they might be going through a rough patch right now and questioning God. But you should never question God, he wanted to teach them. God might degrade you. God might spit on you, but God always has your best interests at heart, no matter how things appear on the outside. So, in other words, he's the quintessential abusive partner or abusive parent. Yeah, it's great, isn't it? To illustrate that point, he brought his brother, Brenton Todd, on stage. Michael Todd then proceeded to spit giant wads of saliva into his own palm three times before smearing it all on his brother's face. What an outward sign of brotherly love. Oh, God. I can only imagine that his brother is never going to assist him in a sermon illustration ever again. I certainly wouldn't. I wouldn't either. Yeah. The congregation definitely grossed out. Good. But Good. Pastor Dodd just said, and do you do you hear and see the responses of the people what I'm telling you is how you just reacted is how the people in your life will react when God is doing what it takes for the miracle. So if I, people are repulsed by me, that means that God is doing a good work in me? I guess. Okay. Yeah, that makes about as much sense as anything else this idiot has to say. Yeah, right. And here's Hemet Mehta's commentary on that. The spitting doesn't even make sense here. Michael Todd justified it all by saying that this is what Jesus did to heal a blind man. But that's not even what the Bible says. In John 9, Jesus spits on the ground in order to create mud, and he puts that mud on the man's eyes. Michael Todd, who apparently hasn't read that chapter, skipped that important step. Of course, Michael Todd isn't Jesus. He doesn't have magical healing powers. Also, we're in the middle of a pandemic, you dope. Do you think that that's even something that he's considering no, when he does I, this shit? No, I really don't. I don't think he has a thought in his head. No, you think he cares no. about infecting his own brother with a deadly virus if he's going to do this to him? Oh, seriously. Yeah, no. Let's hope that Pastor Todd is remembered forever as the guy who wiped spit on someone's face. Because, ew. It would be a worthy legacy for this idiot. It would. And with that... What a wonderful way to end Christians behaving badly. Yeah. But with that, we're going to ask people for money now. Okay. You see, that's because that's where we are in uh, in this episode. We're going to talk about snot, and then we're going to ask people for money because that's how we do things around here. Our Patreon is active at patreon.com slash Unbound Podcast Network. Any amount of money that you can help out with is going to be put to good use. So if you value this resource and would like to see us do more with it, this is your opportunity. Go to patreon.com slash Unbound Podcast Network and make your pledge. If you are uh, monetarily challenged at the moment, that's okay too. Likes, shares, five-star ratings, good reviews, sharing content on social media, all the things that make podcasts grow. These are things that you can do to help us out too. And we hope that you will. Over the next couple of weeks, we've got some good things lined up for you. We've got our review of The Life of Pi coming next week, January 30th. And then on February 6th, we are going to be taking a look at snake handlers. Mm. And 
these crazy idiots that let snakes bite them and drink poison and all of this stuff. This is not news in the world of evangelicalism. This is what we call extreme Pentecostalism, where these people take certain things in the Bible very, very literally, and with all due respect, often die for them. So we're going to be looking at that in a couple of weeks. I'm going to let the patrons know right away that's not coming out until Saturday night. Because the way that things are right now, brand new business, and my one and only other instructor is down with COVID. So things have been a little bit topsy-turvy with this, but still pretty good. And it's really showing me what I'm capable of. So I'm happy with that. I'm happy that I'm still figuring out how to get all of this done and keep producing this show every week on top of all of that. But I have very specific motivations for everything that I do, whether it's work or this podcast or whatever. So... I constantly surprise myself with what I accomplish, but I do know that the movie episodes, they go long. Yeah, they do. And for the amount of content that you hear, there is usually another half hour or 40 minutes that gets cut. So that's a lot of editing. (laughs) So all I can say to our patrons is be patient with us. Okay? We've got this covered. It might not always come out on Friday night. It all depends on what my week looks like. And a longer episode like the movie review episodes, are probably not going to be available on Fridays. But uh, we're doing our best. We thank you for your support in whatever way it comes to us. But if you can make a monetary donation at this point, we would really appreciate it. And yes, it would make a big difference in just how smoothly things start to run around here. And with that, let's continue the conversation that we started last week about the Azusa Street Revival And let's look at why it happened and why this is still a thing today. You know, it's funny where my research for this show takes me at times. Once I got done with last week, I literally sat there saying to myself, so we told people we were going to take them from the what last week to the why this week. And I had a few specific things in mind, all of them except for the obvious. My first thought was that these things skyrocket because they start with influencers who have kind of cult-like kinds of personae. But that's not entirely accurate. I don't think William Seymour had what could be accurately described as cult leader qualities. I just think that he was enthusiastic about his subject. And that enthusiasm managed to get his message in front of the right people, and shit just exploded out of what was largely fortunate happenstance. This is more for the lifetime atheists in the audience. You know, if Pentecostal evangelicalism has never actually touched your life personally, then from the outside looking in, it definitely does look kind of cultish. Pentecostalism in particular relies so heavily on these weird-ass beliefs and practices and forms of mysticism that you don't really see anywhere else in Christianity. So yeah, um, from the outside looking in, it does look kind of cult-like, but it's not a cult. And here's why. Let me just start out by saying that I think that all churches and religions are dangerous organizations, but there are distinct differences between evangelical religions and cults. Some evangelical religions do tread close to the line. The Mormons or the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints comes close, but still misses the mark on a number of points. Ditto the Jehovah's Witnesses. There are cult-like qualities to these religions, but they still aren't by definition cults. To make my point a little clearer, I'm going to do a little compare and contrast on the Cult Education Institute's list of warning signs that an organization might be a cult. So I'm going to take it point by point and kind of give you the counterpoint as to why evangelicalism doesn't quite fit that mold. 
First, they say that cults display absolute authoritarianism without accountability. Well, most evangelical denominations have central governing bodies. They often have democratically installed leadership, and the leadership shifts and changes over time. AG churches in particular are all considered sovereign, but they still have to adhere to the doctrines found in the fundamental flaws to be considered an AG church. In other words, the average evangelical pastor is in fact accountable to a larger governing body. And that is not the way that it is with a cult. Next, um, cults tend to not have tolerance for criticism or questions. Well, most evangelical religions are happy to explain what they believe to outsiders, and I was always taught to be instant in season and ready to defend the things that I believed. We were super tolerant of criticism because, well, it opened doors to witnessing. Next, cults usually don't have any meaningful financial disclosure regarding budget. A lot of evangelical organizations are guilty of this, mostly Christian charities, and then out on the fringes you have televangelists right. that are definitely guilty of this. But it's only one point. Next, cults instill unreasonable fears about the outside world that often involve evil conspiracies and persecutions. And while we were propagandized a lot about the persecuted church throughout the world and the end times was always in the forefront of sermons, books, and teen movie nights, those mm. lovely Mark IV movies, yeah. this is more of a white evangelical thing. And while white evangelicalism isn't in and of itself a cult, those who identify as such do display distinct cult member traits. When I think about this one, though, my mind goes directly to things like the Branch Davidians and the doomsday messaging of Jim Jones. Uh, it doesn't go really to anything that I ever heard from an AG pulpit. Next, former followers are always wrong for leaving, and there's never a legitimate reason for anyone else to leave. Well, you know, the AG didn't stalk me when I left. Even my old senior pastor, when I wrote and asked for my membership to be dissolved, took it in stride. All he had to say is that he knew I felt they'd done me wrong and that they would be praying that I decide to once again use my talents and abilities to glorify God in full-time ministry. That was it. That was yeah. where it ended. Former cult members often report being abused. Well, there's plenty of this in evangelical circles, but it is largely unintentional. It boils down most of the time to people passing down stupidity that they learned in church from parents pastors, Sunday school teachers, etc. Not exactly Nexium or Scientology level abuse. And don't even get me started on David Koresh about this one. And, you know, yes, evangelical leaders are guilty of sexual abuse in alarming numbers too. It just has different motivations than those of cult leaders. And yes, both are equally disturbing and wrong. Next, there are records, books, articles, or programs that document the abuses of the leader or group. This is not something that you see in evangelicalism, either not that the abuse doesn't exist. Next, followers of cults feel that they are never good enough. And we get this too, but evangelical churches typically deal with this by having more altar calls. They don't extort money or encourage members to self-harm as a means of self-betterment. And a lot of cults do just that. Cult leaders are considered right at all times. And, you know, I never heard anyone cite the superintendent of the Assemblies of God as a final authority on anything. Mm. So there was that. And I've never really heard of that being a thing with some of these other organizations either, although I might be wrong. I'm not as close to, like, the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Mormons as I am with this. So I could be wrong about that. But it seems to me like there are a lot of opinions that fly around out there about certain things, and they change along with the leadership. 
Lastly, the leader is an exclusive means of knowing truth or giving validation. Now, in evangelical terms, the claim is that the religion offers this, but no single person in any evangelical church typically makes claims like this. So as we go through this conversation, please understand that I'm not calling any evangelical church out as a cult. But when it comes to getting people to do things like making multiple trips to the altar, like tithing, like giving free will offerings, like spending disproportionate amounts of time in church, their standard MO works for a lot of the same reasons cult-like tactics work on people. Eventually, we will do an entire episode on cults and explore this concept further, but I felt it was important to separate cult practices from what happened at Azusa Street. The former starts out with much less innocent intent than the latter. The latter is just more of that awesome influence of ideas that are already many, many, many generations old and will continue infecting people until enough of them wise up and get themselves unbound. So if what happened at Azusa Street wasn't cultish, what was it? Let's have a look at some of the reasons why this happened and why it's still a thing in society today. It starts with understanding that people are typically followers by nature. This is why you have more employees than business owners and why there will always be more people in the pews than behind pulpits, more worshipers than worship leaders. You get the idea. Most people out there just want some kind of routine to follow and other people to emulate and follow it with them. Now, there are some ways where evangelical religion and the psychology of cult mentalities mesh really well together. I would go as far as to say that these four things in particular applied to many of the people who got caught up in Azusa Street and how many evangelicals today still approach their religion. First, there's the desire for self-improvement. Baptism in the Holy Spirit was considered a huge step in a person's spiritual journey. It was a gateway to receiving more of the gifts of the Spirit, and many evangelicals, particularly Pentecostals, are taught that seeking the gifts of the Spirit was the single most important avenue to self-improvement and spiritual maturity. Then there's the need for a greater sense of community, still the number one reason why people join and stay in religions. We are social creatures. We need to interact with each other and have shared experiences. At Azusa Street, the concept of community was a huge motivator. It seemed to break down racial, social, and economic barriers. Holy Spirit baptism was there for everyone, for all races and ethnicities, for the rich as well as the poor. And this appealed to a lot of people there. The concept of family and community is driven pretty hard in evangelical circles and always has been. Then there's the need for peer acceptance, and boy, don't I know about this one. Seeking things like the baptism in the Holy Spirit leads to greater levels of acceptance among peers who are also seeking the same things or have achieved them by way of prayer and supplication. Now it's time to match them spiritually so they continue to like me and want me around. That's the mentality. In the case of Julia Hutchins, for example, if you listened last week, it was a matter of not losing everything and everyone in her life. There may have been an element of opportunism in her involvement with Azusa Street, and I definitely think there was. But I also think that there was a heavy social and subsequent emotional element to it, too. Everyone she knew was adopting Seymour's message, and she didn't want to be left out in the cold. I mean, her church was her family, and she was rapidly losing it. So maybe it was a conscious decision to just do this thing and just start blurting out in tongues so that she could fit in. But I think that there was a much heavier and much deeper emotional element to it. I think she believed it at the time. But I think that the motivation for at least stepping a toe in the pool was a little bit more opportunistic. 
And lastly, there's the notion of being in a place of vulnerability. People are way more prone to agree to things when they are vulnerable to them. When I first went to Word of Life, I was in a place where I had an overwhelming need for acceptance. And when I thought I'd found it, I went all in with the people who were there to give it to me. The same holds true for a lot of people. It's why some people go running to a religion when they experience personal loss or tragedy. The solace found in the religion gives them the opportunity to give themselves a break from the negative emotions and focus on something that provides comfort, like seeing their loved ones in heaven again, especially if it's a child. So that kind of gives a context to the rest of the conversation for tonight. But as I dug a little deeper on the subject, I came to a few interesting conclusions about why people are so happy to just follow the leader or hop on the bandwagon, as it were. Psychologists actually use the term bandwagon effect to describe what happens when large groups of people suddenly ascribe as one to a central belief, concept, or idea. So what is this bandwagon effect? Simply put, it's what happens when a new concept gains a small following, which grows until it reaches a critical mass. That's a quote from an article from Effectivology.com, and I'm going to come back to that one a few times tonight because they have some really, really good insights on this. People, even the ones who typically rely on other people to do their thinking for them, think that they're making their own choices and decisions a vast majority of the time. And there are a lot of those kinds of people out there, and you don't have to be evangelical at all to be like this. The truth of the matter is that most of us, at least in certain situations, do let other people do our thinking for us, whether we realize it or not. A study conducted by psychologist Robert Cialdini involved examining the placement of signage in Arizona's Petrified Forest National Park. He focused his research on two specific paths in the park. On one path, there was a sign saying, quote, your heritage is being vandalized every day by theft losses of petrified wood of 14 tons a year, mostly a small piece at a time. The other had no such sign. He was able to demonstrate that the path that did not have the sign had a third less theft compared to the path that did. The reason for this was that visitors interpreted the sign to be telling them that it was okay to take small pieces as souvenirs since they're stolen nearly every day by other people. Fewer people thought that it was okay when they weren't told that basically everybody does it or that it happens every day. So the people who saw the sign, their minds go to thoughts like, this is just something that people do, and this piece probably weighs a gram. I'm good. You know, mm -hmm. that's the way that that goes. There are many reasons why we, as human beings, tend to follow the crowd, but these are the most prevalent. First, we zero in on the popularity of something. If that thing attracts a lot of people and there's a positive vibe that it gives off, we automatically assume that the thing is worthy of our attention. Second, since we as humans are social creatures, our nature tells us that the chances of surviving increase when we copy the behaviors of others. Of course, this isn't always true. I have to police students trying to gun yellow lights or emulating other drivers' bad behaviors all the time. I don't think that the people who were involved with Azusa Street adhered to Seymour's teaching because they thought their lives depended on it, but I do think they followed the crowd for these two distinct reasons primarily. They caught the vibe, and they saw that perceptibly good things were happening to the people already involved, so they left their intellect at the door and rolled around in sawdust yammering babble. The bandwagon effect also has strong influences in these and other areas. It affects political opinions, buying habits, certain behaviors like littering, 
um, people are more prone to litter in places that already have a lot of litter mm. than they are in places that are generally clean. The bandwagon effect has influence on adopting new technologies. Just ask anyone who's ever waited overnight in line to buy an iPhone. Adopting new trends in areas like music, food, fashion, movies, pretty much any form of entertainment. And, of course, adopting religious views. Another example that uh, that this article cited was an old candid camera sketch. It's so funny we were talking about candid camera yeah. yesterday. But they did this one experiment, and they did it multiple times in various iterations, where they put a bunch of people in an elevator. And instead of just standing facing the door like we always do when we get into the elevator, they had people face backwards. Mm. And the people who weren't in on the gag would get in the elevator and they would think that it was a little bit strange. But because every other person in the elevator was facing backwards, they turned and faced backwards with their back to the elevator door also. (laughs) This is a prime example of the bandwagon effect. And Azusa Street was also a classic example. William Seymour's claims about Holy Spirit baptism found a small initial following. It was actually met with more resistance than acceptance in the beginning, if you remember. But slowly, the numbers of people buying into the messaging grew a little, and as the movement got more attention, it attracted more people until it grew into a legit juggernaut that even managed to win over people who had originally rejected it. It also won over people whom others considered to be spiritual leaders, which is another key element to this phenomenon. Put a little authority and a bit of attention behind an idea, and people, pardon the term, flock to it. But how does this work? What makes people so enthusiastically hop on the bandwagon and let it take them places they quite possibly would never go otherwise? Well, it starts with a shared experience or idea which leads to specific behaviors that spread throughout the group and make it gather momentum. Almost without exception, every trend and fad that comes and goes enjoys at least momentary popularity because of this. Just ask anyone who ever spent disproportionate amounts of time feeding Tamagotchis, got into fights over Beanie Babies, or actually bought a brand new pair of bell-bottoms around 1994. (laughs) All of these things had a few things in common as they related to psychology, but the biggest two were that first, they were status symbols. They made the people who had them look superior to people who didn't, and the people who consumed these products saw some level of personal benefit in being part of a popular trend. Well, as I've said many times on this show, people don't change much over time. And whether it's 1994 or 1906, human psychology is what it is. And it was psychology, not spirituality, that allowed all those people to lose their inhibitions and do everything from scream and cry loudly to writhe and convulse on the floor to passing out slain in the spirit and, oh yeah, make baby babble and call it language. The next piece to the puzzle is that most people are, in fact, conformists. This can work in our favor, especially during a pandemic. At the height of COVID-19, when we were supposed to be staying home for anything except shopping for essentials and going to work when applicable, the vast majority of people did at least the minimums that were asked of them. Most wore masks, most did at least a half-assed job of social distancing in public, and so on and so forth. Most people with half a brain still do. We get accused of being sheep by those who don't, but that's another interesting point. The anti-mask, anti-vax crowd have also hopped on their own bandwagon. 
They have a lot of support for their position, and that level of support empowers them to keep poisoning the information pool, detracting sound information, and pushing their own nonsensical agendas. So really, the ones who call themselves nonconformists for continuing to resist masking and refusing vaccines are really just conforming to a different idea. No points for originality, folks. Sorry. You're conformists, pure and simple, just like the rest of us. But the direction we take with conformity has everything to do with what we determine best for us as individuals. If we take a specific side on the mask and vax issue, just for example, it's an example of normative social influence. We do what we can to fit in and gain acceptance from the group of people that best represents our personal values and offers validity to our opinions on certain issues. In the case of religion, it's the validation of belief. And that is why this whole thing was so popular. Yeah. The initial physical evidence was, in a lot of these people's minds, the validation that they were looking for. And all of a sudden, all of these people who really never had any proof that God existed had what they believed to be proof because they had convinced themselves that they could do this thing and that it came from God. But, you know, getting back to the points that Effectivology makes in their article, the whole anti-vax thing is an example of what's called informational social influence. In this case, it's a bunch of people deciding to adopt a lot of bad information without proof. And that's what the people who followed William Seymour were doing. They adopted his message absent of proof. He had never spoken in tongues, but he did everything in his power to convince people that anyone could. The fact that he couldn't in the minds of the people that he was influencing was irrelevant. The perceived value of the messaging and the thoughts of personal reward were enough to at least give his movement a little forward momentum. But the fact that Seymour had never spoken in tongues was enough for some people to believe in it for themselves. What if I could actually do this? People would be impressed. And I'm certain that that was going through some of their minds. Now, remember also what happened when just one person spoke in tongues in one of those meetings. What happened the next night? Six more, six more quickly followed him. And then more and then more and then more still. Why? Because even today, most spiritual influencers, and I see this play out predominantly in Pentecostalism, use a specific mental trick to get the momentum started. And by that, I don't mean that they're trying to trick you. I mean that it's something that our minds do. They form what is called a heuristic. It starts with an idea, usually one that involves a tangible reward or outcome. The desire for that thing then creates a mental shortcut to agreement. People start very quickly forming judgments and making decisions, especially in certain situations like large group meetings and church services. And church services. And I'm sitting here thinking about the night that I first quote unquote spoke in tongues and all of the things that went along with it, being told to stand up if I thought that I was being called into full-time ministry, going down to that altar, being told to breathe in and breathe out my prayer language. All of these things are examples of how this works. Sometimes if there is uncertainty about something in a person's mind, they'll make a snap decision about the thing at hand right then and there, which is precisely what I did that night. This satisfies the need for closure within the thought process because we don't want to leave things hanging. We don't like what ifs. As human beings, we don't like what ifs. You know, what if I had actually stood up that night? What would my life look like right now? You know, I didn't want to think about that. So I stood up. 
And I still say that I did a lot of this unconsciously, but in the back of your mind, these are the questions that are being asked. And once you make that decision, it brings with it a sense of relief. People feel better once they make decisions, and the simple act of making the decision empowers them to keep moving forward with it. This is why when one person responds to an altar call, it's not long before many more follow. When one person starts speaking in tongues, others quickly follow. They make the snap decision to do what's socially acceptable at the moment and relieve the conflict in their minds about the concept they're being asked to embrace, whether it's accepting Christ, speaking in tongues, or the countless reasons that they throw at you to go down to the altar one more time, especially when it comes to rededication. That's a huge one. And the Effectivology article says it really well. When people encounter bandwagon cues, sometimes also referred to as popularity cues, which are signs that other people believe something or are doing something, they use those cues to guide their own actions under the assumption that it's beneficial to act the same way as others or that other people's judgment is worth relying on. The bandwagon effect often employs heuristics as a means of pushing the agenda forward and making people adopt certain beliefs and behaviors either consciously or unconsciously. I don't think many of the people who descended on Azusa Street did so with the intention of lurching around in the sawdust. That was, for many, an unconscious response to the environment. They stopped just being themselves in that setting and literally started doing and saying whatever popped into their heads to do or say. Even today, like when I was a teenager, I was taught to just let my prayer language flow. And this was every single time I went to the altar for this. It didn't happen the first time. But it was the same cues and the same advice every single time. Breathe in and just breathe out your prayer language. Well, it took some doing, but I finally mustered up the uh, the courage to start babbling at one point. They tell you to separate yourself from the equation and let God speak through you. So now it's not me doing the thing. Now it's God doing the thing. So in your mind, in, in the mind of the person involved in this activity and behavior, all of a sudden, it's not them anymore. So there's that loss of inhibitions. It's not me doing this. It's God doing it. So it's okay. I can just do it. So my question then is, why not just totally disconnect from reality, ditch the concept of decorum, and just scream at the top of my lungs? Um, because that's what's in my head to do right now. So, And that's what they were doing at Azusa Street. Once Azusa Street exploded, there were people that became so uninhibited that they were perceived as lunatics. But many of those people also had jobs and social lives outside that setting where they never behaved that way. I mean, I never attempted to give a message in tongues in the middle of regions biology, for example. But boy, did I use my gift whenever I was inside the walls of that church. The point is this. We are always in control. It just depends on how much self-control we choose to exercise at a given moment. We can insist on maintaining decorum or we can hurl ourselves on the church floor and convulse. In a setting where the latter is not only acceptable, but also happening all around us, the tendency will always be to do whatever the crowd is doing. Some people engage in bandwagon behaviors over a concept that may not be new, but the presentation of it certainly is. I'm going to hop on the modern slang bandwagon here and just say that a lot of times behaviors manifest and people make decisions to do something because of a little thing called FOMO, or fear of missing out. They look out at that altar, and there's a sea of happy people completely enthralled with their God, purportedly speaking in a divine language that he has given them, and all of a sudden, seeking the baptism in the Holy Spirit is a huge priority. 
They even use this in more macabre ways when trying to pitch the salvation message, don't they? Don't miss out on heaven. Don't miss out on an eternity with Jesus. One day you'll find yourself being glad you made your way to this altar tonight or anguished over your decision not to. That was said to me the night that I got saved. So here's just a little bit about how the bandwagon effect spreads. The bandwagon effect can spread quickly through what effectivology calls a, quote, positive feedback loop. The more people become affected by something, the more likely it is to affect more people quickly. In Azusa Street terms, it was the energy and excitement that rose throughout the area that started quickly attracting people from all walks of life and all manner of religious influence. But it began way before that. When Seymour only had a couple devout and fervent believers behind him, it was the excitement of the few that fueled the hysteria that erupted later. A small group of people formed this bandwagon absent of any kind of proof or supporting evidence, not even from the guy postulating the theory. Don't forget, Seymour was not the first to speak in tongues in that group, but he managed to convince a small quorum of people that what he was saying was true, and that small quorum quickly silenced the detractors around them. Not only did it silence a lot of the detractors, it drew them in. A tiny positive feedback loop in the form of one person, Edward S. Lee, if you remember him from last week, he was the first one in Seymour's group that's actually spoken tongues. And that event quickly resulted in six more and so on and so on and so on clean into the 21st century. Bonnie Bray Street was just one stop away from Azusa and it literally took off because one person in the group managed to lend a tiny molecule of perceived validity to the concept. This resulted in enough people hopping on the bandwagon to literally collapse someone's porch under their combined weight. And it wasn't even all of them. It wasn't even close to all of them. So there I think is a really good answer to the question of why Azusa Street took off. It's very basic human psychology. We do this shit all the time, and it takes on a lot of forms. This is just one of them. And it's comparatively tame when you consider the things like rioting and looting also fall under the same cover. That doesn't mean that things like speaking in tongues or the things that go along with evangelicalism in general aren't inherently harmful or even dangerous in some ways. Belief in and of itself is a dangerous concept. Shared delusions that culminate in things like Azusa Street are particularly dangerous when one examines what they do to individuals. They can leave aftershocks and even fuel concepts like baptism in the Holy Spirit over the course of decades or more, 115 years and counting. So how can we guard ourselves against the bandwagon effect? Well, here's Effectivology's list spun to align with the subject at hand. The first thing they tell you to do is create distance from bandwagon cues. Basically, don't go to church and don't look to church as a form of entertainment because that's what they are trying to provide. They're trying to be entertaining. They're trying to be exciting. They're trying to do things that get your attention and draw you in. Just steer clear. Just say no to church and you're going to have a much easier time of avoiding all the rest of this bullshit. Next, they tell you to create optimal conditions for judgment and decision-making. You know, like not going to church. Also, make sure that you apply a healthy degree of critical thinking to any and all situations that involve following the crowd into anything. What is the actual personal benefit to battling like an infant in the middle of a revival meeting? Think about it. It really proves nothing. 
And how does something that you can only do fashionably in church equate to personal growth and empowerment? Next, they tell you to slow down your reasoning process. In other words, think. Think before you act or before you make decisions about anything that affects your life and your perception of it and the quality of it and how you spend it and the people you spend it with and the people you listen to when you're trying to decide what your morals and ethics are going to be. And what's a stellar way of avoiding that? Uh, Stop going to church. Then they tell you to weigh the pros and cons. Always look at both sides of an issue or idea. What are the benefits and what are the disadvantages? If you start making a list of pros and cons about going to church, you won't go anymore. Trust me on this one. Just start thinking about it from the standpoint of logic and reason, and you're going to watch the cons just trickle down like a waterfall, and you're going to be scratching your head over the pros. Because the one and only pro that most people can get out of this is the community aspect of it. And like I've said many, many times before on this show, there are better communities out there by far than your local church. Next, they say, hold yourself accountable. You are responsible for how you use your intellect. You are responsible for whether or not you insist on proof when you're told to just believe something. You owe it to yourself to make certain demands of yourself when it comes to how you're going to think about anything you know, like church and whether or not you should go. Next, they say to take a good, long, hard look at the bandwagon and who is on it. And I will add to that and ask yourself just how much like this particular crowd you really want to be, especially the people at church. Next, consider the options. Give your emotions and intellect equal time inside your head, but let your intellect do the explaining and the decision-making. Do I really want to be accepted by these people so bad that I would compromise my common sense about what they want me to believe? Or should I just stop putting myself in front of influences that I know to be toxic, dangerous, or just plain wrong? And when you figure out the answer, stop going to church. (laughs) Lastly, consider the outcomes and consequences of the decisions that you make. And this one, for me, is a big one. And I think this advice is going to help a lot of people out there. Look critically at the way older Pentecostal evangelicals behave. Look at how their beliefs manifest. Look at how their religion has influenced the way that they think and so on. Note how the religion has influenced people over time. Because guess what? This is you when you're their age, if you keep going to church and keep letting those influences infiltrate your thought processes and the way that you think about things and the decisions that you make about the things that you do on a spiritual level. When I read this one, for me, my brain went right back to that dude who came in as a guest speaker in my pastoral practicum class in college. You know, this guy, he was so addled on the Kool-Aid. And I remember sitting there, in case you haven't heard this story before, I remember sitting there listening to this guy, looking at his vacant expression and listening to his vacant words and telling myself, buddy, this is you in 50 years if you don't get the fuck out now. It was a screaming thought in my head during that class period. And I mean, it's almost 30 years later and I can still take myself right back to it. Why I didn't listen right then and there is beyond me because you want to talk about a major canary in the coal mine. That was it. Look at the people, especially the older people in your church, who have been part of this religion since they were little, and see how they act and behave. Ask yourself if you really want that to be you, because 
If you look at it from the standpoint of logic, the answer has to be no. Of course, there was that running thread through all of that with stop going to church, stop going to church, stop going to church. Um, you know, it was my way of just inserting a little bit of humor into the situation. But it's also one of those funny but serious sorts of things, too, isn't it? Because where does a lot of this begin? It begins with either making the decision to go or being in the habit of going to church or church functions. When you walk right into a situation expecting a positive experience, it leaves you wide open to all kinds of suggestions and influences. So the whole don't go to church thing might seem tongue-in-cheek, but please don't lose the seriousness of it in the humor. Lead yourself not into temptation. That's good policy. So that really is the solution in a nutshell, isn't it? If you don't want to be indoctrinated, don't go where you're going to be indoctrinated. It's quite elementary, but when weighed against the reasons why people succumb to the bandwagon effect, the scales are pretty much equal. All the same things that motivate us to hop on the bandwagon are the very things that keep us going back to church or motivate us to spend disproportionate amounts of time in church environments. And that means that all of us have a degree of vulnerability, even after we start catching wind that all the bullshit is in fact absurd. If you go way back to episode three of the show, you'll hear the entire story of how I first came to speak in tongues and how I eventually managed to dissect what was really going on with it. It's a good companion piece to these last two episodes, so if you haven't heard it, I suggest giving it a go, especially if this is an issue that keeps you on the fence about your faith. You'll learn all of the psychology behind it and how the things we talked about tonight play into the individual experience of glossolalia. And since I give a pretty good talk at the end of that episode about not getting down on yourself for believing it, I'll save the time doing so here. The fact that you've listened this far tells me that you already have at least enough healthy doubt about this part of your faith to hear and listen to reason. So in the context of this conversation, I'll just say it again. Steer clear of influences you know to be unhealthy. Use your intellect to guide your emotions. Just because something seems exciting and stimulating and even self-empowering, that doesn't make it a good idea. And while there are plenty of free thinkers out there who also take on a follower role in most areas of life, those people understand the importance of weighing the decisions about what we do and what we think against logic and reason. It isn't reasonable to accept something as true without proof, and certainly not without proof from the person making the claim. There are good paths and good crowds to follow. Having the ability to tell the good from the bad is a sign that you're at least on your way to getting and staying unbound. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Unbound. Show topics are chosen based on their timeliness, relevance, and social impact. Have suggestions for future topics? Email us at unbound.podcast.network at gmail.com with all your comments and feedback. Please don't forget to like, share, and throw a few five-star ratings our way and follow us on all major social platforms. And don't forget to hit subscribe if you haven't already. Links to our social pages as well as a full list of cited sources in today's episode are listed in the show notes available at our website, getunbound.org. That's get-unbound.org. If you value this resource and would like to see it continue, please consider supporting us on Patreon at the link in the show description. And be sure to check for new updates every Sunday when we'll come together again and take one more step toward getting and staying unbound. Unbound.